So this year for Advent, we are going to journey through the season of Advent, and we are going to imagine that we have a drone, and it's hovering over the manger here in Bethlehem, and we're going to fly that drone up into the universe, and then we are going to look back down at the biblical story. We're calling this a cosmic Christmas. And as we look down from that vantage point, we're going to be able to see the entire biblical story from beginning to end. And what we're going to see is that that story is broken down into four distinct acts. Act one is the story of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit creating everything that exists. The heavens, the earth, everything in them. Act one is titled creation. Act two is the story of the creation rebelling against the creator. The, the people that God has created revolt against the creator. And act two is titled the fall. Whereas act one and act two are told in just a, a, a chapter or two, act three is the entire sweep of the, the biblical narrative from, from almost the very beginning to almost the very end. That's going to happen two weeks from today, and I think we might need more than an hour uh, to cover it. So just plan accordingly. Uh, that's a joke. Um, <laughs> that's bad when you get the laugh after that you tell everyone it's a joke. <laughs> Note to self. Act three. This is titled Redemption. This is the act where God, the creator, takes the initiative to make right what has been broken. He enters into the, the story and is on a rescue mission to rescue the, the creation. Act 3 is titled Redemption. And then Act 4, like Act 1 and 2, is told in just a, a, a few pages, just a, a couple of chapters. In a way, Act 4 is a return to Act 1. Creation is recreated. It's made new. Act 4 is titled Restoration. So every Sunday, we're going to look at a different act, and then on Christmas Eve, we're going to bring that drone back from the universe, and we're going to come back to the manger and, and hover over that and, and zoom in on what was going on in the manger that is uh, during Act 3, it's a special scene, and we call that scene incarnation. Incarnation, when, when God stepped out of the heavens and became one of us, took on flesh. Join me as we pray. Father God, we thank you for giving us your word so that we might know what you want us to know, that we might do what you want us to do, we pray your word would be our rule and that your spirit would be our guide and that your glory would be our greatest desire. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Act one, creation. Instead of beginning in the beginning, we need to make a pit stop. We need to make a pit stop in the hot desert sands of Egypt. There the Israelites are being enslaved, and they've been enslaved for several hundred years. 
they came to Egypt in a time of famine. And because Joseph had risen to, to prominence in Egypt, they were able to come and be taken care of. They had favor with Pharaoh and with the Egyptians, and they began to populate. They began to, to increase in number. And Pharaoh died, and Joseph died, and a number of years went by, and as they got larger, Pharaoh and the Egyptians became more and more threatened by them. And so in order to keep them kind of under their thumb, to keep them subdued, they decided, let's enslave them. And so they enslaved them, and they treated them ruthlessly, and this went on for 400 years. Imagine that. 400 years of slavery, of being treated ruthlessly. It got so bad that Egypt began to commit infanticide. The, the Hebrew children, the boys that were born, they would kill them after they were born. This goes on for 400 years. This is so long that, that the Israelites are beginning to forget their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they're beginning to forget the God of their ancestors. All they have are some dimly told stories from, from something that happened long ago. And those are becoming fuzzy. They're living in this land of Egypt surrounded by all of the Egyptian gods and goddesses. Some scholars believe that there were up to 2,000 Egyptian deities this is the land that they've been living in for generation after generation, 20 generations of Hebrew people living in this land of Egypt under all of these gods and goddesses. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, a distant memory. The God of their fathers, a distant memory. Know that the gods that they are familiar with go by the names of, of Ra, the sun god, the god of light. And Nu, the father of Ra, the god of the waters, and, and Horus, the god of the sky, and Tauret, the goddess of fertility and childbirth, and Sobek, the god of the Nile River, and Isis, the goddess who, who took care of and, and protected Pharaoh, and Osiris, the god of the underworld, and on and on it went. The Egyptians had a god and a goddess for everything. There was a goddess of cats. You can imagine what she was like. A goddess of cats, a god of construction, a god of war, a god of destruction, a god of storms, a goddess of night. Every Egyptian city also had its own unique gods and goddesses. And so God, one day, in a burning bush, speaks to Moses Moses draws near, and God tells Moses, I'm sending you back to Egypt to rescue my people. And Moses has a, a question. Suppose they ask me, what is your name? What shall I tell them? And God answers, tell them I am who I am has sent you, the God of your fathers. Why did Moses raise that question? Suppose they ask me, what is your name? He raised it because it was a legitimate question. They didn't know. I mean, the memory of who this God of their fathers was, was a, a distant memory. 
They didn't know who he was. Tell them, I am who I am sent you. And so Moses finally agrees to go. And he goes to his people, and God, through Moses, does these amazing miracles. Plague after plague after plague, ten of them, each plague carefully designed to dismantle one of the Egyptian gods. It's more than just a plague going on. What God is doing is showing your gods are powerless. They can't stand toe-to-toe with me. And so these amazing Plagues take place, and God rescues his people, parts the sea. They're now nomads living in the the wilderness, in the Sinai wilderness, and they want to know, who is this God who is showing us such incredible favor? Who is this God who, who can tell the sun not to shine and raw? can't do a single thing about it. Who is this God that can turn the Nile into blood and knew is powerless to stop him? Who is this God that can separate the sea so that we can walk through on dry ground and then he rains that sea back over the Egyptian army? And Sobek, the God of the Nile River, he's unable to stop him. Who is this God. We're stopping in Egypt because this is the origin of Genesis. This is the context in which the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the books of Moses, this is the context in which that's written. And so when God inspires Moses to write down Genesis, He's answering specific questions. Do you know what the the Hebrew people were not asking? They weren't asking about the dinosaurs. It wasn't on their mind. They weren't asking about the Ice Age. They weren't asking whether this earth is thousands of years old or millions of years old. What they're asking is who is this God, this amazing God. And who are we to be shown such incredible favor? And so God inspires Moses to write about things that Moses wasn't there to experience. He's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And this is the first words that he writes. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So imagine the Israelites, who for the first time now have something written before them about their God. Imagine them reading these words. And what do you suppose stands out to them? I think two things. I think the first thing that stands out is that God has no antecedent. This God has no antecedent. In the beginning, God, there is nothing that precedes this God. All of the Egyptian gods, they have a a birth story. Like one God came from another God came from another God. This God 
has no birth story. In the beginning, God. What that means is that every string that you pull on, no matter what that string is, eventually, if you pull long enough, you wind your way back to God. And once you get back to God, you go no further. There's no further that 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 string extends. It goes back to God. In the beginning, God. The question sometimes is asked, if God created everything, then who created God? And frankly, it's a, a foolish question. It assumes that there's an antecedent, that there's something before God, but there's not. He is the antecedent. He's the, the first cause of everything that exists. He is not just a creator. He is the creator. There is no other. Everything comes from him. Nothing precedes him. In the beginning, God, the very first subject of the sentence is none other than God. Which leads to the second observation that I think would have jumped off the page to the Israelites. Because God is the antecedent of everything, the first cause of everything, it necessarily implies that creation exists because, and only because, God has willed it. Because God desires it. Now imagine these are people who have grown up in slavery and they're probably at a point where they feel like our life has no purpose, is absolutely meaningless. Generations of our ancestors have lived and died under, under this ruthless rule. But now they're learning about this God who, who creates, that they have been created with purpose, for purpose, and on purpose. What is this saying to us? It, it means that you and I are not an accident. None of us are here on accident. A, a lot of you know my story. I, I'm adopted. Humanly speaking, I am what they call a whoops. <laughs> but speaking from a, a godly perspective, I'm not an accident. I'm here because God desired me to be here. You are here because God desires you to be here. And, and your life has such incredible significance, such incredible purpose. You'll often hear today uh, that we just need to find ourselves. Like if we find ourselves, then everything in our life is going to just work out fine. And, and, and that is absolutely foolishness if you separate that from, from God. If our origin is that we are created by God, you cannot find yourself if you are not including God in that equation. You can't find yourself until you find God. Or we hear today about the importance of being self-aware, and it is so important. But you cannot become self-aware until you become God-aware. So continuing, the Holy Spirit inspires Moses to write these words. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. 
God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. God's very first act of creation is to turn the lights on. And this is what God does. He turns the lights on. It's not a mistake that we celebrate Christmas at a time of the year where the days are becoming shorter and shorter and shorter. And the day of Christmas falls almost exactly on one of the, short, the shortest days of the entire year. As it's getting darker and darker and darker, we light one candle. We light two candles, three candles, four candles. And then on Christmas, we light the Christ candle. This is what Jesus does. He enters into darkness and he turns the lights on. And notice how easily he does it. And God said, and there was. And God said, and it was so. When uh, our daughter Sarah was a, a little girl, one day we heard her praying in her bedroom. And it went something like this. Karen does this a lot better than I do because Sarah had a twang at that time, a nasally twang. But she said something like, um, God, uh, I love that when you said, let there be light, there was light. And now when I pray, let there be a clean room. I pray that there would be a clean room. It was Sarah's introduction, introduction to unanswered prayer. <laughs> and God said, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. What God wills happens. There is no equal and opposite force that is able to defy God, to stand against his will. What God wills happens. He alone is God, and there is no other. Pharaoh, with all of his horses, with all of his chariots, with his great army, the, the strongest king that was living at the time, couldn't stand against God. The horse and the rider fell into the sea. The Egyptian gods and goddesses, they couldn't do it. Isis, the goddess whose job was to protect Pharaoh, couldn't help him when, when his son died in the 10th plague. When God chooses to drive out darkness with light, darkness is driven out. When God chooses to do anything, it's done because he is the Lord. And again, he's not a Lord. He's not one among many. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord. When you look in your Bible, often you'll see that. Capital L, capital O-R-D. That's the Bible's way of telling us this is his name. This is Yahweh. But they revered the name so much that they wouldn't even write it. Instead, they just write capital L-O-R-D to tell us that this is his name and there is no other. You see what the Israelites were learning and what we need to learn is that our God is sovereign. He is the sovereign king over all things. He's the God of the, the Israelites, but he's also the God of the Egyptians. Check out this psalm from Psalm 33. It says, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made, the starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the water of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. 
Israelites, Egyptians, Jews, Gentiles. Let all of the world revere him, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. And God said, and there was, and it was good. This is the pattern throughout all of Genesis 1. God speaks, and it is so, and it's good. What God says he will do, he does, and when he does what he says he'll do, it's always good. A greater truth has never been spoken. God is good. God is good. So after creating light, night and day, after creating the sky, after separating the waters from above and the waters below and creating dry ground and, and vegetation, after creating the sun, the moon, and the stars, after creating the, the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, God decides to make a special kind of creature. Then God said, let us, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the living creatures that move on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. Had we read today all of Genesis 1, we would have noticed one more pattern in, in the words that were spoken. God creates things, and then he states, according to their kind. God creates the, the fish of the sea according to their kind. God creates the birds of the air according to their kind. God creates the livestock according to its kind. But when it comes to the man... When it comes to the woman, the phrase is noticeably absent. In its place, the scripture says God created man, male and female. He created them in his own image and in his likeness. Now, that does not mean we are all little gods. But it does mean we are reflections of God in a way that nothing else in creation is. God clearly has all the power. God has all the authority. And yet God decrees to give us a measure of his power and a measure of his authority. And he charges us to rule. Not as we see fit, but as he sees fit. Our ruling should follow the pattern of his ruling, which means when we give our word, we do what we say. And when we do what we say, it is supposed to be for the good. Creation should flourish under our rulership. 
we do not have the authority to rule over one another. Not for four minutes, not for 400 years. We are no different than than anyone else. Every single human being is created in God's likeness, in God's image, and that means every single human being has dignity. It's intrinsic, which means it comes from nothing outside of us. It doesn't come from our our ethnicity. It doesn't come from where we're born. It doesn't come from the color of our skin. It doesn't come from our intellect, our education. It doesn't come from our income. It doesn't come from how well we shoot a ball. We have intrinsic dignity and value simply because we are created in the image of God. Let us never, ever hear, if you're not Dutch, you know how the rest of that goes. We have great dignity. We have great authority, but greater yet is the authority that we are under. There is one king, and everything in the heavens and the earth is his. And this world that we're living in, it's his kingdom. We are his vassals. We are his servants. So that's Genesis 1. Don't worry, we're we're wrapping up here really quick. That's Genesis 1. He alone is God. He is good. He's sovereign. What he decrees comes to pass. And as created beings, we owe him our allegiance. And so now we turn the page to Genesis chapter 2. And what God is doing is taking off the wide-angle lens on the camera and putting on a telephoto lens and zooming in on his creation. And Genesis 2 takes place in a garden. And there God creates the man and the woman, and he gives them names, Adam and Eve. And he places them in this incredible garden. And he's pleased to dwell with them. He lives with them there. And he enters into a covenant relationship, and he makes the the stipulations of that relationship. Being God, he's allowed to do that. He's the creator. And so these are the stipulations. He says, you are free. Wow. You are free. You're free to eat from any tree in the garden. You're free to eat from the tree of life. Eat from it every day. But you are not free to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. I want to say, easy enough. Like There's all these incredible trees. Just stay away from that one. No problem. And then Genesis 2 ends on this very interesting note. The man and his wife were both naked. And they felt no shame. I'm going to make the case that this is heaven. This is heaven. This is so far from our reality today that we can hardly even imagine it. Adam and Eve enjoyed this relationship with God and with one another in which they could be completely exposed and have no fear. Completely exposed, completely naked, and not fear rejection. Bodies naked, souls naked. Naked before God without shame. 
naked before one another without any fear, naked in their own eyes with nothing to conceal, no reason to blush. A relationship with God and with one another that is marked by a pure and holy conscience. This was heaven. This was heaven on earth. This was paradise. And I'm convinced that it's what we all long for. C.S. Lewis says that if you have a a desire in your heart and there's nothing here that, that meets that desire, it means you were made for another world. I have a a hunger for that, to to stand before God, before my friends, before my family, before myself, with no shame, no reason to blush, completely exposed and completely safe. And he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other except Adam and except Eve was ever known. This was the life for which we were all designed. Act one, creation. Act two is coming. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are God and that we are not. And that we don't have to have all of our questions answered. But you invite us to trust in you and you are worthy of our trust. Lord, we thank you for the gift of life. We thank you for the gift of this amazing world. Lord, help us put our hope in you. Help us wait expectantly, patiently, trusting you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.